I'm Tom Barbley, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, January 23rd, 2010. Model Rail Radio is a completely listener-generated radio program about the model railroading hobby. For more information on the podcast, you can go to modelrailradio, all one word, dot com. And, uh, yeah, if you're interested in communicating, show topics, that kind of stuff, you can email me directly, tom at modelrailradio.com, or one word, or you can join the Model Rail Radio uh, mailing list, which the details of the mailing list are available through the Model Rail Radio uh, webpage. And, yeah, this is a, an open internet radio show. Uh, we record every other week uh, on Talk to. We're currently recording on Saturdays. It's currently 4.30 Pacific, and uh, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, I should say. And that will probably be the recording time going into the future, uh, or at least for the next five months. Unfortunately, my usual co-host, Chris Abbott, isn't able to attend uh, today's recording. However, I'm hoping that Ben from the previous show will call in and assist with the co-hosting duties. So from our last show, when we had Ben on, uh, there were a number of topics that uh, Chris wanted to continue with, and I emailed Ben in the interim to get his feedback on the particular topics. He sent email responses, but I'd like to wait for to have him on the call in order to talk to those particular responses. But in the meantime, I'd like to give a bit of an update with regards to my own model railroading interests, some of the uh, ebbs and flows in that, and also some of my experiences constructing a shelf layout. Um, some background with regards to my own kind of progression in model railroading, because uh, certainly with the benefit of having Chris as a co-host, I normally don't want to pollute the podcast with my own tales of woes and experiences. But certainly um, I went from one extreme to the other, which I talked about a little bit recently in terms of the idea of initially being a heavy planner up front. And when I say heavy planner, I mean probably a couple of years' worth of planning to actually just kind of throwing some track together and getting some general principles. And what I'm looking at currently, as I'm waiting for Ben to call in, is the, um, the uh, what would one call it? I guess the, uh, the, the manifestation of these ideas, basically, in the form of track. So what I'm seeing in front of me is really the separate areas that I wanted to create. Uh, and also, because I did this over three levels, there are various points of kind of central interaction and the levels kind of ebb and flow off. If I were to do it again, which is always seems to be the question that uh, certainly goes through novice, intermediate and even advanced model railroaders as the conversation with Chris on the last show identifies, I'm thinking that N scale just isn't really my scale. And I'm looking at the shelf as it's laid out and there's certainly a lot of space that's available in terms of various lengths of, of trains that are possible, probably up to um, at, at least five cars on most of the sections. But you are limited to the shortest possible in, interaction point, and I'm certainly finding this because it's a um, 
not just a point-to-point, but a point-to-point-to-point layout, fundamentally. Uh, there are kind of three points coming out of uh, out of two at one end and one at the other. So I'm thinking really that probably I should make my next layout HO. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I still have the downstairs table layout, which uh, takes up a, a good portion of the library area. And I folded up the table layout primarily because we've got lots of uh, in-laws, uh, lots of my wife's family uh, coming through and the potential of other folks coming through. And our library area downstairs also functions as a kind of third bedroom if we have a number of guests. So as my work on the uh, on the downstairs table layout has, uh, I wouldn't want to say faltered, but certainly become less of a priority, I did want to make the space available down in the library. And the library area is actually quite nice. There's a lot of books and some sitting room and it's a good good area to kind of decompress from a day in. So the large eight foot by um, eight foot by five foot layout, maybe eight foot by four and a half foot. Actually it's longer than that, so it's ten feet by probably five foot layout uh, in a in a round around format. Just really doesn't lend itself currently to the space. But it does make me think that if I were to take the N uh, scale track off the layout I would have a lot of potential to do stuff with HO, and also I'd have a lot of potential to create to create a layout which wasn't necessarily round and round. It could be point to point with some interesting interactions and modify the table in some way. I guess fundamentally, I mean, this may be going back to my background in software engineering, but I'm always interested in taking a shape and then redeveloping it and then experimenting with it and redeveloping it. So. What you may hear through the uh, discussions in Model Rail Radio is probably my own particular proclivities with regards to software also being represented in a, in a physical form with regards to the layouts. But it also gives me the opportunity to do modelling in a different scale, and really my own interest in, in um, kind of continues, but at the same point I'm probably the first to acknowledge that the kind of N-scale layouts that I've developed so far have been much of the same muchness, but also very much based on the fact that I have limited space, so I'm really almost kind of abusing the limited space that's available to me as I look at the shelf layout. There are sections of the shelf layout that have five and six tracks to the wall. So I do think my lack of space as being a, a fundamental problem which can only be solved with more track. And I think HO lends itself to... Uh, to not necessarily be part of that problem. So I don't know. I'm interested in actually brainstorming with Chris and potentially others as they call in to model rail radio in the future ideas about how layout should be developed and uh, particularly changes of scale because I think this is my second semi-functioning uh, N-scale layout and I just feel that I probably need to start experimenting with maybe a slightly larger scale, and also something where the equipment is, I don't know, I don't necessarily want to say less finickety, but certainly of a, an order where, I don't know, I'm, I'm just getting a little sick of them, basically. Uh, but I do have this layout in front of me, uh, which I'll continue to develop and continue to report on, and I think the the main issues that need to be added currently are the, the finalised laying of the track. I have the track kind of planned out in a particular fashion and also a sense of the the trains and how the track is going to work and this goes back I think probably to podcast number one or two 
uh, in the model rail radio uh, listening uh, show number, more importantly. And that related to the idea of a narrative behind each layout and the fact that I look at a, my own designing and development of layouts associated with a, a narrative. And it's a narrative which can be manipulated and changed, but basically it's still something which someone who looks at the layout will, to a certain extent, immediately be receptive to. And whilst I haven't been a, a long-term uh, model rail hobbyist, I still have an interest in the idea that all these hobbies, um, rail or what we talked about with radio-controlled cars and boats and planes and these kind of things, uh, toy soldiers, all these kind of what I consider engineering hobbies, although the model rail hobby has its own unique components, they all have uh, linking ideas in terms of things like narrative. And as I look at my shelf layout currently, I don't really see a narrative. I think this is the distinction between throwing things together fundamentally and planning and planning and planning and planning things is that the narrative in the planning and planning is very much a matter of loading software in my case, or if you do it on pen and paper, doing yet another drawing of potential layout components. And when you instead throw things together, um, which I wanted to try with the current layout, I've lost elements of the narrative, which I liked initially. And I'd also really like to move into experimenting with a different scale. So I may strip down the table layout downstairs and move to something which is HO and may fit in with the room a little bit better. I think the just general large size of the table, the difficulty with regards to moving the table, and also various minor problems associated with the, uh, the weight and various other aspects of the table make me think that probably I'll strip off the, uh, the end track off it and uh, turn it into something in HO. But I think that's very much in the kind of summer time frame, southern northern hemisphere, kind of June, July time frame, because I really want to hone my skills with the shelf layout as I have currently. Uh, and some of that may be simplification. Some of that may just be saying it's ridiculous to have five separate tracks between you and the wall at any given part, and really returning to a, a simplified vision uh, of the project. So time will tell. Like I say, Chris's particular narratives and model railroading and my particular narratives run in, in parallel and maybe we'll bounce off each other. But I really would like to have the opportunity to talk with Ben this evening, I see him in the chat, about his own particular experiences and also perhaps uh, looking at some of the discussion with regards to foam and turnouts. <laughs> Hello, Ben. Good to have you on the call this evening. So, Ben, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to have you back on the show. I know Chris couldn't make the uh, the call today, but he said that I should probably put the call out, and you, you stepped up to the plate first, so it's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you again this evening. So, folks listening in, I, I know you've talked about this in, in um, on the Model Railcast show, and I think you talked about it a little bit on the last Model Rail radio show, but... In terms of the layouts that you've done in the past, say, four years, can you give a description to them and the various kind of learning experiences that you had through each? Um, let's see, I've built a little bookshelf switching puzzle 
thingamajig, this very crude ballast and scenery and unprototypical awfulness. <laughs> and um, took my dad's line out set and now there's some plywood and green paint and paper mache mountains and not exactly fine scale, but you know, trains nevertheless. And then I've moved on to nature scale more or less northeast and I've learned that you have to think everything through. And was the shelf the shelf the initial one you described the shelf layout switching problem, was that at line L scale? Mm-hmm. Gosh. So in terms of the number of turnouts and the kind of problems, can you kind of describe it? Not thinking through everything the first time, I would say. In terms of turnout problems, I mean, these these are traditionally framed in kind of magazine articles with a certain number of turnouts and some interconnecting problem and some trains moving through with various pick-up and drop-off requirements. Was it based on a traditional switching problem or was it just your own construction? Just whatever turnouts I happen to have lying around, I just put them on a piece of foam and glued it down. (laughs) Okay, okay. And you learned from that process that you should probably think things out before you do that in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've also learned to... um, Mark where your turnouts are going to be on your roadbed and spread the glue so that you don't glue the points in place. I've done that many times. Very good. Very good. In fact, I was so afraid of that when I've done my recent uh, recent layouts that I basically have the turnouts almost floating in mm-hmm. terms of them not actually being like, even on the connecting ends, there's very little stuff underneath them if I need to kind of move them up slightly up or down in order to get the uh, the throws in the right position. Excellent idea. So, for the topics this evening, the the two that Chris wanted us to to talk on was foam and turnouts. I know you've written on foam first, followed by turnouts. But as we were talking about turnouts, what do you think are the golden rules associated with turnouts? When you're drawing your track plan especially if you're using some sort of CAD software. Um, I've had experiences that the uh, geometry of a turnout, you know, say, you know, a number four left-hand turnout or a number six left-hand turnout or something that would be commonly used on Model Railroad, um, Pico, Atlas, Microengineering, Tanlight, et cetera, they're not all created equal. And they have different lengths, you know, past the frog and so forth, so you have to take that into account. Um, so definitely one think about how your turnouts are going to fit together. Um, from all that I've read, the um, insulated frog versus um, live frog and power routing turnouts uh, makes no difference with BCC. But if you're going to have um, metal frogs that are insulated, and you'd want to power them, especially if you have steam locomotives, because the sound-equipped steam locomotive will find every single short electrical problem with your track on your entire layout. So returning to the various, the various brands of turnouts, which do you find superior? And in terms of the, the distinctions through your experiments in HO in particular, 
Can you give some kind of overview in terms of moving between the CAD software and the actual turnout itself? Um, what I've done for my current layout project is I drew up the entire plan and extract CAD software, and then I printed it out full scale, you know, 12 inches to the foot, and then kind of tacked it down to the layout, and then traced through that with the track center lines, and then laying the turnouts on top of that so that everything matches exactly. But um, yeah, different brands of turnouts. I've personally used Atlas and um, Code 100 and Code 83 on previous layouts, and they seem to work pretty well. But now I'm experimenting with handling with the fast tracks jigs. And that takes some patience, and also you have to have some sort of positive stop mechanism to hold one point rail against the stock rail, since as the prototype actually bends the rail. Now, there's no little swivel on the prototype like there is on a turn turnout. And I notice in your notes that you say that many commercial turnouts are out of NRMA specifications out of the box. What you're saying here is that they don't comply with NRMA specifications out of the box, or they do? If you take an NMRA gauge and look at a lot of um, off-the-shelf or need-to-run turnouts and wheel sets and so forth, you'll find that they're a little too big, a little too narrow. you got to tweak with them because no matter how great your layout looks, um, from all the operations folks that I talk to, they say the looks of the layout matter nothing until your track work is bulletproof. So this is the appeal to doing things with fast track fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And that they're built perfectly engaged and they stay that way. Is there any way to actually take an out-of-the-box turnout and modify it with minimal surgery in order to make it NRMA specification? Or is it something where you should discard out-of-the-box turnouts? Um, I personally haven't tried it. <laughs> That's on my to-do list is I need to get a proper gauge and check these things out. Um, so I couldn't really answer that. I don't have any experience there. But the general sense from the operations folk that you've spoken to, and these are typically in the Connecticut area, or is this a broader surveying? Um, around just from every model railroader who I've talked to has built a substantial size layout. They'll say, get your track work and wiring perfect. Run some trains, give it a shakedown, test it out, and worry about scenery. But the nature of a large-scale layout, even like a basement size, or even a, a fraction basement size layout, versus mm-hmm. a shelf layout, they're, they're very different things in terms of the running. Um, and certainly, if you have longer trains going through a, a basement size layout, those kind of interactions are going to be... Um, very particular, particularly with regards to the oscillations of the trains, how the interactions mm-hmm. would turn out versus, say, a shelf layout where um, you, you may have a few tricky cars, and certainly my own experiences has been uh, with shelf layouts and relatively small table layouts, that you work right. out that... You have to be careful with you know, very small turnouts. I mean, from what I've read, the smallest that the prototype ever used was like a number 12 and we can build layouts with number six turnouts. <laughs> and, you know, I've built little shelf layouts with number four turnouts and 15-inch radius curves and so forth, and it's not pretty. I mean, it will work, but sure. there's a lot of the difference between running that and running streamlined passenger cars, you know, on a 1,000-square-foot you know, basement layout. Certainly, but I guess my point is that 
actual length of the train and the effects of oscillation within the length of the train oh, is okay. the function that occurs on larger sized layouts, whereas <laughs> on shelf layouts, what will happen is you'll find individual cars are probably more likely to fail at particular turnouts, so you can weed those cars out. The the tolerance mm-hmm. and here I'm not I'm not an expert with regards to this. This just comes from my own experience. Mm-hmm. As you say, the the whole notion of kind of smoke testing a, a layout mm-hmm. with regards to what what breaks first. But I found, uh, and this is because I've only used commercial um, Atlas turnouts here in the U.S is that um, you then go to optimizing the cars rather than the particular turnouts because they're mm-hmm. a particular kind of wheelbases. So I wouldn't necessarily, particularly because the listeners to the show maybe at any level of expertise insist that on your first attempt at a shelf layout, you immediately go out and buy Fast Track and discard the hobby based on that <laughs> experience. There are ways, even with out-of-the-box, ready-to-run turnouts, that you can tune the elements of the layout, particularly if it's a small layout, but mm-hmm. you will be playing, I mean, you are then fundamentally playing with the, the wheels um, of the of the uh, particular cars in terms of tuning them, or just, as I mm-hmm. have done, run, you know, run a dozen cars along the layout. The ones that fail particular turn and turnout configurations are the ones that go out in a nice display case, but the ones that don't are typically right. the ones that you continue to, to maintain. Yeah. yeah, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Stephen Priest. He has a very, very well-known uh, Santa Fe or, uh, yeah, Santa Fe layout. And he'll actually um, make little um, gaps in the track and use a little screwdriver to smush the rail down. Um, because the the um, as a prototype car goes over the rail joint, it will wobble back and forth a little bit. So his trains, as they go over the track, every thirty-nine scale feet will oscillate. Which, to me, I would rather look at trains on a model railroad that run very straight and smooth. <laughs> but that you know, it's yeah. something you you do what what you enjoy, it's up to you. It's your railroad. Certainly. I think when I started the show, I wanted to be very honest with regards to the conventional wisdom is only applicable to particular instances. So in what works really well on basement-sized layouts, for example, is something which is perhaps slightly different than what would work on a shelf-sized layout. And the kind of stuff that goes on in basement-sized layouts, and as you say, the uh, bulletproofing with regards to the track relates to the fact that you have potentially very long trains, potentially trains that are running continuously over evenings' worth of operations. Well, even if you have a very small layout, you still have no excuse for bad track. Because if you have bad track, the trains are never going to run well, to be perfectly honest with people. So. Certainly, certainly. But the way in which you tune various aspects, because bad track means two perhaps slightly different things. The first thing is gaps in it that's out of gauge and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And the second is with regards to actual layout design. You can create layout design problems, as you described, with turns and turnouts, which which create effectively the same thing as if you had, uh, you know, uh, gaps and various other problems. Right. You don't want to run long pieces of rolling stock 
through tight radius S-curves. Not a good idea. Certainly, certainly. And similarly, can you talk a little bit, and this is again for the for the absolute novice, but can you talk a little bit about the problem of shorter turnouts relating to the speed of the trains? If you have a small wheelbase locomotive, like an 060 switcher or something like that, like you might commonly have on a shelf layout, and you're running small turnouts, or any size turnout rather, if you don't power the frogs, then there is a reasonable chance that that small locomotive will stall on the front of the turnout. And if you're running longer turnouts with that same locomotive, the frog is only just going to get longer. So my advice, I haven't gotten around to doing this yet, would be to power the frogs or use long wheelbase locomotives or run at high speeds or some combination, whatever works for you. I remember seeing on um, the Reality Reduced video podcast some explanation Mm -hmm. of the reason that you have longer turnouts, particularly off main lines, was that the speed of the train coming off the main line would be, well, it would, firstly, it creates these kind of oscillations. This is um, smoother. Exactly. That the shorter the turnout, the more oscillations you're going to get in longer trains. But similarly, just coming off a turnout uh, at speed where it's a short turnout can cause derailments and a wide variety exactly. of momentum problems which don't exist right. with the longer You do not want to be on that train. Certainly. <laughs> or even modeling that train. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, or particularly with regards to shelf layouts. And I think this is interesting because we talked a little bit about spike testing, but this is something which I found uh, was critical both with designing shelf and table layouts is that you want to use both prototypical speeds and also non-prototypical speeds to actually test the interactions of uh, turnouts and curves and also to, I guess, test both the the rolling stock and also the locomotives. Oh, Um, experiences too. Certainly, certainly. So in terms of the turnout discussion alone, Ben, what else would you like to to explain to the listeners about turnouts? From all that I've heard, read, experienced, et cetera, there's a general, seems to be a general consensus that when you have a derailment on your model railroad, 99.9% of the time it's going to be at a turnout. In fact, in the, um, one of the more recent issues of Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine, um, the editor Joe Fugate was trying to troubleshoot his staging yard, and a very awful derailment had broken a wheel and jammed it into the turnout. So also make sure that your turnouts are accessible. Because if you have a turnout that's inaccessible, way in the back or under scenery or in a tunnel or anything like that, Murphy's Law basically tells you that something will go wrong if it can go wrong and that your train will stall or derail or get stuck in that accessible place on your layout. Certainly. And there also appears to be some kind of conventional wisdom. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the layout formulas um, methodology of um, kind of creating a numerical representation both of the complexity of the layout but also uh, the various maintenance issues and the kind of uh, trains that should be run on a particular layout. But there's a, there's a metric associated with turnouts in all these kind of formulaic uh, means of describing a, a layout which basically almost says that by necessity you want to minimise the number of turnouts that you have in a layout. Yes. 
the fewer turnouts, the more reliable the track, et cetera. I mean, not that you can't have, you know, a million turnouts on your layout and have it all work very well. Just you're going to have to have a lot of patience and be very meticulous. When you're laying track, do it right the first time. If you mess something up, don't be afraid to pull it up and start over again. I've had to do that plenty of times. I think that's the, the nature of the hobby, fundamentally. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> it's all fun. Certainly. So in terms of actual layout design problems, I mean, I've experimented this with this myself. The other thing is that the proportional cost of turnouts versus the proportional cost of other rail means that minimizing turnouts also has some kind of financial um, advantage as well. But I oh, also absolutely. Want... Or you could hand-lay them, like I do. True. It just takes time. Certainly. Well, yes. Yeah, that's that's kind of time, energy, cost analysis, and, and all, all those things. Yeah, well, if, if you're, if you're hand-laying turnouts like I am with fast-track jigs and Central Valley makes um, self-guiding um, tie strips that does a similar sort of thing, once you have the tools, the cost of the rail itself is like a dollar fifty a turnout, something like that. Mm-hmm. But in terms yeah. of the tie wood and the soldering and all those kind of things, how much how much are those parts of it? Well, some people like to cut their own ties, so you know that's how they can pretty much be as expensive or inexpensive as you want it to be. You could, you know, rail you have to buy yourself. You know, commercially, and then you can cut your own ties. Um, fast track sells pre, um, you know, pre wooden laser cut ties that you can just, you know, snap out and glue on, and it looks great. Um, you can use plastic tie strips from Central Valley. The cost is really up to you personally. I um, actually haven't gotten to building has turned out this far yet, but I have microengineering rail that I cut and solder together and so forth with FastTrax tools. And then um, use plyobond glue or marge cement, whichever suits your fancy, to um, major cut wood ties, and I just snap them out. And in terms of actual turnout control, you've talked a little bit about the placement of turnouts, mm-hmm. but the, the control associated with that placement is also critical as well. I remember talking with Chris about the many different ways that you can um, control turnouts, but what what are your preferred methods? On previous layouts, I've even gone so far as to use um, dental floss and uh, little washers for weights and a little uh, Lego pony next to the turnout, <laughs> you know, which worked fine for atlas turnouts, but with fast tracks, you need something actually mechanical like a tortoise or... Uh, a ground throw. I have a bunch of uh, Caboose Industries HS code ground throws mm-hmm. that I'll use. Um, how did you find them? The, uh, the ground throws? Yeah. How do, you, do you find them easy to use or do you find that they break or what's your analysis? With yeah, them? They, they look well, they're probably overscale except for Z, but they um, certainly add a lot of tactile involvement to running the trains and if I'm running trains on a club layout, you know, I like having that physical uh, confirmation that the switch is thrown as opposed to punching in a bunch of numbers under your little um, handheld controller and then going through the DCC system and turn a slow motion switch motor that takes several seconds to throw. Yes, my experience in in, in, um, 
was that they split. They also were slightly out of... Um, the turn was slightly greater than the actual movement within my Atlas N55 uh, turnouts. Mm. Um, and there were a wide variety of kind of small problems that accumulated to the point that um, I... Well, at N, I'm, I'm not sure how they operate at HO, but at end, and this is again at 55, not at uh, 83, um, it, they weren't um, as, as good as I'd hoped that they would be. What interests me within the hobby is that there appear to be almost as many different turnout throw methods as there are kind of advanced hobbyists from door oh, handles yeah. to push rods. And yeah. I mean, can you talk about some of those and have you considered any of those in, in your current or future lab? Yeah, I have. Um, some people um, build their own with a piece of piano wire and a little lever and coat hanger wire out to the... Um, Facial board, if that works, you know that works for them. Um, Joe Fugate has a very nice um, method using um, piano wire, fishing line, and um, little uh, door, you know, latching door bolts. And then you pull those up and down, and then use a piece of fishing line and pulls the wire, and it works great. Um, you had chatted with. Uh, Duncan before about his servo system. I've been meaning to try that out. Uh, there are tortoise, uh, there are slow motion stall motors, there are handcraft motors, um, like Stephen Priestes used. He actually made his own styrene brackets with these little slow motion motors. You can use your fingers, you can use uh, springs, you know, the Pico, you can just throw them with your finger. Pretty much if you can think of a way, you know, you can do it. Because I've used um, a lot of people, if you have Pico or Atlas turnouts and you don't use uh, any kind of mechanism, you can just use a little um, what, bamboo shish kebab skewer. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think there are certainly a number of options. And um, I don't know if I'd... I think maybe in HO I might try a small order of Caboose Industries throws just to see if it was my own peculiarities of track that, that caused most of the uh, problems that I had with them in N. But well, I think, if they don't work for me, I'm hand playing, so I'll just make them so they work. <laughs> yes, yeah, you, you have that advantage, um, certainly. The complexity associated with hand blade turnouts, I mean, I've been uh, watching on YouTube, I think it's called the New York Harbor Railroad. Oh, yes. Um, he, and, <laughs> have you seen those videos too? track. Have you seen those videos as well? I have, and uh, Dave Ramos has heard numerous times on the on all Railcast show and so forth. Um, that website and his layout um, got me going in a lot of the waterfront rail riding and so forth, but I've been watching his construction updates. Maybe you want to put a link to this in the show notes. He has a double-slip, double-cross turnout in code 7DHO, all hand-laid, and all the frogs are powered. Yes, it, it does seem very impressive. <laughs> he, yeah, he he's recently pulled a large portion of it apart, though. Yeah, he's looking to. Um, yeah, he removed all the high line to have a more realistic curve to go um, for passenger cars going to the post office. So you know, don't be afraid to rip something out and start over. You know, you want to if you can't do it right the first time. You know, that's very hard. It, it takes a it takes a lot of thought. Um, 
don't be afraid to pull it out and start over again. Like, you know, I'll, I'll confess here, you know, when I was laying track on my new layout, started laying down the high line, and I realized that I forgot to super elevate the curves, which I just think looks pretty cool. So when I, one of these days when I get a chance, I'm going to go in there with a putty knife and pry it up a little bit and slip a piece of strip wood or something under one side of the ties, and then I'll have super elevated curves. Certainly, certainly. But in terms of the hand laid turnouts, you really have the ability to almost run... I mean, I, I understand that you deal initially with um, physical frames, which you create the turnouts through, but there's nothing stopping you from doing a wide variety of uh, prototypical turnout formations, even even three-way turnouts and uh, yeah. a wide variety. Have you seen um, Tim Morris's... Um Central New, New Jersey uh, Bronx Terminal. Is he the fellow? Who, he's the fellow who travels around at shows. Yes, he's the creator of Fast Tracks. Um, I'll find a link for you um, for the show notes. But he's modeling the uh, Central New Jersey Bronx Terminal, and it was a circular freight house. And then, kind of tangent to that circle, was a car float in a yard, and the most complicated track work imaginable more or less um there were even places in that in the prototype where if you wanted to get into the engine house you would take out little temporary pieces of rail that were flat and lay them over the existing track and then run over them at like three miles an hour yeah i've seen various photographs and also obviously chris has seen it in the in the metal have you you've actually seen the layout in the metal as well I haven't seen it yet, but I should see it next week. <laughs> right. And for folks listening in, what's actually happening next week? Springfield Show. And uh, for people listening in, what what are you expecting to see at that show, and, and what would others expect to see if they attended? Um, it is a ginormous show in West Springfield, Massachusetts. The Amherst Railway Society puts on a wonderful show at the last um, the weekend before the Super Bowl <laughs> every year and it's the um, 30th and 31st of this month in West Springfield, Massachusetts and by my count there are over uh, 1800 vendors Gosh. and exhibitors so it is absolutely huge Gosh. well it sounds like you're going to have a lot of fun and yeah. please Please come back and, and deliver a report onto Model Rail Radio. Mm-hmm. It'd be wonderful to uh, to get a sense of those kind of shows. I only have a sense of those shows through through videos and obviously podcast reports. Mm-hmm. So it'd be wonderful to have you back on. And uh, thank you very much for uh, for, for co-hosting this evening at relatively short notice. All right, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yep. to have the opportunity to chat with Ben. I'm sorry we weren't able to talk a little bit more on phone, but it will be uh, a wonderful opportunity for Chris to come in next uh, next show, which will be in two weeks' time, probably around the same time, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, which is 7.30 uh, in the evening on the East Coast, where Ben called in from. And, uh, yeah, it'll be wonderful to chat with Chris and get some of his feedback with the show. Ben's just saying, wonderful chatting, wonderful chatting with you too. Not a problem. He has midterm exams. It's been a, a privilege to chat with Ben this evening. 
Well, folks, as I've uh, said since the start of this podcast, Model Rail Radio is completely listener-generated, and it was wonderful to have the chance to chat with Ben this evening. Uh, we'll have Chris on um, at our next show, which will be in two weeks' time, probably around 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Could be a little later, could be a little earlier. The way to get that information is to go to the Model Rail Radio site. That's site again, modelrailradio.com. And typically, along the uh, left-hand side, there's information about when the next show is going to be. I do populate the information probably slightly later than I should, so you'll typically get maybe four or five days' notice. But the way to really get the information is to go on the Model Rail Radio mailing list, uh, which you can get to on modelrailradio.com. Click on the list information, sign up, and then you uh, will have the opportunity to participate in picking the show time. So, as we had been on this evening, anyone can come on the show and co-host or suggest questions or topics. There is a chat room that is always active, and it's always wonderful to have new folks on the show. So, if you've liked what you've listened to so far, I was on iTunes only this week, and saw someone had left a wonderful comment about the show. So... Thank you for folks who are listening in. And, uh, yeah, if you'd like to leave iTunes comments or get in contact on show topics, it is listener-generated. That's the nature of Model Rail Radio. It sounds like we'll have Ben back on maybe next show, maybe a show following, to talk a little bit more about the Springfield show. Another thing I wanted to do with Model Rail Radio, and I know we kind of do this with Chris because he calls in from Canada, but I would like to get more international content. So if you're listening to Model Rail Radio and you're in New Zealand, for example, like Chris Shorthouse, then I'm more than happy to set up a time to do the recording that would be perfect for you. Another interesting thing is with Skype, you can call in internationally and get either very low or next to no cost, maybe even no cost, if you call in through TalkShoe. So there are a number of ways that you can participate if you're listening in internationally. Do not think that this is necessarily a North American-centric show. It is a show that is... Basically, for anyone, anywhere in the world, who's interested in the model rail writing hobby. So, my email address again, tom at modelrailradio.com. This show has been a little bit eclectic, but it's just the nature of the uh, listener-generated shows. So, thank you very much for listening into Model Rail Radio today. We'll be back, like I said, in two weeks' time with another show, and we'll be continuing on the topics of turnouts and foam. And for folks who are listening in that have particular war stories or stories of interest associated with making turnouts, laying turnouts, turnout switching, all that kind of stuff, or experiments in foam, we didn't even get to uh, Ben's discussion associated with that or notes, um, they'll be discussed next show. So join the mailing list and uh, contribute your ideas or email me directly and I'll email your correspondence into the mailing list for general discussion before the next show. I'm Tom Bartolet in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good night.